0: Welcome to the Leading by History podcast, where we're on a constant journey with our listeners, walking and talking our way through history, and highlighting information which is most crucial for changing our world one episode at a time. Come along for the journey with your host, Dr. Masayahu Isra'ul. We look forward to you getting to know us better. Leading by History. Welcome back to another episode of the Leading by History podcast. We are in season five and it is a pleasure and a blessing to be here yet again. And today we have another wonderful guest to share their research and information and knowledge with us. Um, Today we have Dr. Micha Perry uh from the university of haifa in the land of israel and uh dr perry is a senior lecturer for the medieval jewish history in the department of jewish history at the university of haifa and currently his research focuses on the social history of jews and languages during the middle ages uh, with an emphasis on bilingualism documentary culture and identity Uh, and so we are Very, very excited to have Dr. Perry with us this episode. Welcome, Dr. Perry, to the Leading by History podcast.
1: Thank you very much, Dr. Masiao. This is wonderful to be with you. You know, it's rarely that I talk to somebody in the States. has such a great, beautiful accent in Hebrew like you. You pronounce my name so correctly in Haifa. I love it. It's great to be here.
0: Yes, it is indeed great to to be here. And, you know, the Leading by History podcast is not a religious uh, podcast. It's, you know, a secular historical podcast. But from time to time, We engage religious content on this show because it's a part of the history of the world, and it's important for helping us to understand the development of history, especially with regard to religious cultural matters. And so we've had so many wonderful folks on the show, from Dr. Michael Brown to having the mohair of the Institute and Center for Ancient African Religious Ideas. We've had, I mean, just an abundance of folks come on and talk to us about religious concepts and ideas, Dr. Cindy Parker, so many. And it's always interesting because there's history there. And so we enjoy tapping in to that information. So Dr. Perry, we want to title this episode, Jewish Texts and Ideas in the Medieval World, The Time Before Print. And uh, that to me sounds like a great book that we could write together. Mm-hmm. But uh, <laughs> I want us to talk about, first, your background and personal history. How did you get into this field of study? And why is this period of great importance to you and, and its significance to the world? How would you get into this?
1: Thank you, so, Um so I'll tap into what you just said. Even though I'm maybe I'm a religious man, I'm a secular historian. Mm-hmm. And my point of view is purely academic. But I did mm-hmm. get to these topics through studying in a yeshiva in a religious school. And mm. studying these medieval commentators and exegetics like Rashi, like Maimonides, sort of blew my mind, you know. And, and I knew right away that that's what I want to do. And mm. um, from childhood, I love history, mainly Roman history, the French Revolution, etc. cetera. But the moment that I started reading these great minds from the mid- Jewish Middle Ages, I knew that's what I want to do, to combine these two mm. uh, passions. Um, so mm-hmm. I became mm. a medieval Jewish historian. And medieval times, you know, I'll, I'll try to explain why it's so important from two points of view, from the non-Jewish point of view and from a Jewish point of view. Mm-hmm. From the non-Jewish point of view, There's a common mistake that sees Western civilization as if it's rooted in Greco-Roman time. But that is Mm. false. Our modern society is rooted directly in the Middle Ages. All of our institutions, democracy, the parliament, economic institutions, the church, everything, these institutions go back to the Middle Ages. They don't go beyond that to Greco-Roman time. There's no relation between the Greek, polis. And the parliaments today, but there is a direct relation between today's democracies and British democracy in, or the parliament in the Magna Carta. So the Middle Ages are the beginning of our society. We could trace ourselves back to that time. And mm. generally, people think about the Middle Ages as the Dark Ages. So sort there' of a time of ignorance. This was... Mm-hmm. Definitely was not true, and more so for the Jewish side. This was the time that Jewish culture, though it was persecuted, persecuted, flourished. The greatest writers of Jewish history, I mentioned Maimonides and Rashi, but I could mention numerous others, poets, philosophers, scientists, they all worked in the Middle Ages. So this is a time of great prosperous of the Jewish culture. And I'm really humbled by learning these texts of these uh, Greek minds.
0: That's a great segue, because I think some of the most beautiful elements that I've been studying in my own personal research came from and was influenced by religion in some way, the study of, of religion. And when you talk about the power of the written word, the power of writing... Right. This is like really it's the center of things. And whether you're a, a secular uh, person, you know, or not, you know, I don't know if you've seen the film, The Book of Eli. Uh, no, I haven't. It's, it's with Denzel Washington. But okay. but not to give away spoiler alert for the listener. But in this uh, movie, it's sort of one of those end times movies right? That's about the end of the world, the dystopian society. And it's filled with action and blood and gore and and violence and all the stuff that makes movies called classics. But you end up realizing that the entire movie is about the Bible, the biblical text. And there's so much at the very end and again, spoiler alert! It's been out for years and years. So, okay. but at the end of the of the film, they zoom in in the last frame on this bookshelf because the world has been destroyed, and so books are a high commodity, and they're attempting in their rebuilding of society to have the classics. And they zoom into a library, and uh, and there, when they zoom in, you see a kumash right? A, a Pentateuch or a, a Torah, right? The you, see a Quran, right? right. you see the Quran. And yeah. then the final book they add in is a King James version Bible. That movie is an example of what I mean is that you don't have to have any kind of religious belief, but you would enjoy the film, the action, the fighting, the this and the that. But the whole undercurrent of it is driven by a religious text, that everyone is attempting to get their hands on. And so that's where some of the best history is because we know that it's at the hands of religion that many of the challenging things that have occurred around the world have been centered around that. So I think our understanding of religious texts and manuscripts is paramount in understanding society then and even society. Now. I I
1: couldn't I couldn't agree more. And you know these dystopian uh, images, uh, uh, eschatological one, apocalyptic one, they tend to go back to the Middle Ages.
0: Sort mm. of,
1: we're in the Middle Ages. There's but 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 obviously this is a distorted image of the Middle Ages. But two threads that you picked on define the Middle Ages very well. On one mm. hand, it was called the the era of belief. The age of belief. This is a time that people believed. Jews, Christians, Muslims, they believed. And a man's word was something worth believing for. And if somebody mm. took an oath, you could believe him. And on the other hand, and this is a very religious way of thinking about the Middle Ages, as the age of belief. A more secular way would be to look at the Middle Ages as the age of transfer from orality to literacy. This is a time that text, mm. written text became extremely important and in society, in society centered around these texts. And there's a long mm-hmm. process of, um, of the rise of literacy. Let's say. And literacy mm. is not only that people know how to read and write, but that they center their world around a written text. Before the Middle Ages, many of the texts were passed on orally, were transmitted orally. Even large texts, even extremely long texts, were transmitted orally. And in the Middle Ages, people started to produce more and more texts and to write them down. And the written world became much more important. And this we, we have to understand that there's a technical aspect to it, how people produced a manuscript. And we know today that a manuscript is not like the printed book. It's not defined object. It's a complex object that many people worked on. And it had the scribe who wrote it down, but the illuminator also, and somebody who had to wrap the whole thing together to bind it, the binder. Every page had to be made by hand. And this defined Mm -hmm. the nature of the content as well. Each Mm -hmm. manuscript was unique. And even the same text, even the text of the Bible, was sometimes different from one manuscript to another, let alone mm. texts of other, you know, the fathers of the church or or Jewish religion texts, like the, the, the Mara, the Talmud, the Mishnah, whatever, the Midrash, all these texts had different versions from one place to another. And this mm-hmm. created a very varied society that had a plurality of texts and a very fluid sort of knowledge that only with print, was shut down and defined as one defined text. But during the Middle Ages, mm-hmm. we see this plurality of ideas
0: and texts, which is counterintuitive. It's not what we used to think about the Middle Ages. In a sense, there is this view in general history, especially what, what we see in K-12 education, that the Middle Ages is seen as this time of utter darkness, where some believe the entire world was unenlightened, but that's not true. We could limit
1: it to the very early mm-hmm. Middle Ages, where we, we still tend to, the, to call it the Dark Ages, but it's the Dark Ages of sources from the sixth up to until eight hundred. Yes, C. yeah, mm-hmm.
0: yeah, yeah. I agree with you, and I think that when we, when we look at early Middle middle and late middle ages, there is a difference as you become more specific, right? As a historian, thinking in the K-12 world, a lot of times that's how things are taught is, oh, it was this time period, but the Moors were there since seven hundred. Uh, Mm -hmm. around 711, And so the Moors were bringing all kinds of inventions and new ideas into Europe that hadn't been there. So it wasn't like from 700 moving forward that it was the same level of disarray that it had been between maybe the late 4th century until you hit the 8th century. So we are aligned. um, Right, absolutely. um, The
1: earliest contacts, you know, the first time uh, Europeans are aware of the number zero, for example, is 10th Mm -hmm. century. Mm-hmm. 10th century already we have this uh, it it doesn't spread nobody uses it but Gilbert of Aurillac, later on Pope uh, Sylvester II around the year 1000 right translates from Arabic to Latin uh, books about uh, math and introduces the zero and and the astrolabe and and science thinking mm-hmm. already then at the 10th century this is the earliest we have algebra
0: actually coming from right Al-Jabal. one of the right, right exactly <laughs> for sure when mm-hmm. I
1: meet students they say yeah but the, that's the, the the era of the witch hunt mm-hmm. i tell yeah, them, you know uh, it's true <laughs> us medievalists yeah. the, in the middle ages yes we burned me- witches here and there but in the 17th century they were that's where it's the thousands
0: exactly. exactly right that's right yeah it's true it's true Really in those two or three centuries that you have after the collapse of Rome, there is this time period of disarray. Things are out of control, but that should not be the example of the entire period of the Middle Ages. But I think about that time period before folks were having this influx of knowledge, before the Moors come in, before the Enlightenment from the East comes in. You know, when I think about the kind of dystopia that may have been experienced in those pockets around those former pieces of the Roman Empire, much of that was caused by illiteracy, not having the text. In my studies, I haven't mm. put a lot of time in this in many years, but my studies of, of the Middle Ages, in the early Middle Ages, there was there were these stories of folks who w- would solve problems of contradiction between groups by sticking their hands into these cauldrons of boiling water to grab a ring or something the, the uh, ordeals, whoever's, whoever's right mm-hmm. and the whoever's ordeals. hands right. came out without being burned the worst had the truth right. but all of that comes because of this lack of literacy and knowledge i think what are your thoughts there
1: so so uh for the, first of all there's remnants of the ordeals up to this age in time and, and places um I'm not sure it's lack of literacy because also after we have literacy mm. it continues. it's It's a basic it's a basic ideology and a religious concept uh, that God supports the just, mm-hmm. um, and this rose all the way into Max Weber's the 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 ethos of the Protestant uh, religion, meaning that if you're very rich, means that God supports you. The same goes here. If you stick your hand into the fire and you're not burnt, meaning that God supports you. This is a very mm-hmm. Christian notion that uh, Jews were also always demanded to be excluded of. And we have, mm-hmm. when Jews are introduced into Europe, when they travel from Italy, uh, to the Rhineland in Germany, and they settled there. They demand the kings that they will be excluded from all of these, what they call trial by fire, because they adopted a notion that God supports the meek, not the powerful. Mm-hmm. So the fact that there weren't texts and books doesn't mean that there weren't ideas. Mm-hmm. There were all oral ones, uh, and there were beliefs. And in a way, okay. ideas mm-hmm. ideas travel easier orally than in a written text. Mm-hmm. Written texts are much more easier, and this is counterintuitive, written texts are much more easy to be manipulated and to be changed. And this is also because we live in the age of print, it's, it, we find it hard to believe. But today we call, you know, the medieval book is called the open book, because everybody could alter it. Everybody could put in his own ideas, yeah. change it. People... People could take somebody else's um, book, copy it, and sign their own name to it, because this yes. is the truth. So so I'm not sure that, that these ideas of the ordeal um, are sort of an ignorance that sprung out of the lack of books. So these are relig- deep religious ideas that that um, persist to this day in some in, in a different form and, and a different uh, manner.
0: Uh, Yes, I agree.
1: Let's agree. It's barbaric. It shouldn't be
0: done. I'm thinking about the fact that folks who did not have written religious texts were going off of faulty memory. And in some sense, placing religious ideas within a religious system that the actual text didn't support. But in lack of that text, they're going by... The memory and superstition that has gathered over centuries. And that was what I meant by that statement.
1: Right. You Go know, we, we used to talk we used to talk about the the barbarization of Rome, the barbaric mm-hmm. nation, the Germanic ones uh, that conquered the uh, Rome. So so Edward Gibbon he had this picture of the decline of Rome and the barbarization of Rome. Today we we talk more about the Romanization of the barbarians. Mm. Sort of how they took on Christianity and how they adopted mm-hmm. the written world and how all these languages that are spoken today in Europe are sort of a a mixture between between um, um, between Latin, the Roman language, Latin and and barbaric ones. Uh, to a degree, you have French, you have Spanish, you have uh, Roman. Uh, Romanian, which are very close, or Italian, very close to to Latin, and then you have the Germanic ones, English and German and Scandinavian. But it's all a mixture between these two cultures, the barbaric ones and uh, the Roman ones, and and it's and it, and really, they adopted Christianity, they adopted texts. We have a growing level of order, not disorder, as time mm-hmm. goes on. But absolutely, these these barbaric notions, these pagan ideas were also integrated into the European form of Christianity. Absolutely. Mm
0: -hmm. Well, you mentioned something, and I think this is a great segue, you talked about the open book. And I think a lot of folks, religious people would be very um, afraid of that kind of conversation that to even consider that their religious texts had, and we don't have to name them specifically, but that religious text over time shifted and changed with the copyists, uh, you know, hard fundamentalist folks within different religious groups that are based on the book, a book as as their text, find, find it hard. There are entire groups of people whose entire religious system is centered on the book, but I think what you brought out about the open book was powerful because I pulled up right now for our folks that are watching us by video, the the Wikipedia page, right? And one of the things about Wikipedia, you know, in my work, as we work with educators, as they teach students to do history, we always say we don't accept Wikipedia as a source, right? The only good that Wikipedia has for us is that when you go to a page on something there are citations and you learn how to go through the cited material to corroborate what's on the page because anybody can log into wikipedia and change stuff anybody right. can log into wikipedia and add on would this be in your expertise a modern example of the open book per se absolutely okay there's there's differences of degree of course
1: and and this is a um, the open book, I would say the open text. Mm-hmm. It's, and I'm not talking about the great books of religion. I won't put, talk here about the Bible,
0: mm-hmm. uh, the
1: Humas, the Quran, whatever. No, I'm talking about other religious texts, the fathers of the church, mm-hmm. texts that are more easily changed. So you have the text, which is copied into a manuscript, and then copied again, and copied again, and copied again. Each time it's copied, It has to change. There's no way it remains the same. Mm. And these changes are only sometimes mistakes. Many times these are are, um, deliberate changes where the copist changes uh, an idea because it doesn't suit his frame of mind. Mm -hmm. Uh, In religious texts and Jewish religious texts, and I've done the research on it, I could show you, sometimes when it says this thing is forbidden, The copies will say, this thing is not forbidden, Mm. because in his community, it's not forbidden.
0: Mm. That's pretty heavy.
1: That's pretty heavy. It's absolutely Mm -hmm. pretty heavy. And this is one of these ways that a traditional society changes. A traditional society defines itself by exactly that, it's tradition. And it sees itself as moving the tradition from one generation to another. And it sees itself as unchanging. But actually, through the process of transmission of knowledge, it changes all the time. Through these mm. micro-alterations of text, through the, 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 the uh, power of copyists, of readers that reread the text. Every copyist is a reader of the text. Mm. Um, so there's something very postmodern in this, actually. And the, the comparison you made to Wikipedia is wonderful. OK, it's wonderful. It's not the same degree, but still, yes, we have a text that is alive, that is open to alteration, that changes to a degree, not in, in, entirely, but definitely changes. And, and print brings an end to all that.
0: Mm.
1: It yeah. locks this secret fountain of innovation and, and seals it forever until the Internet came. Mm. You know, there's, there's, there's so many books about the comparison between the internet and manuscript tradition, the scrolling down, the changes mm. of the text. So it's a fascinating field.
0: You know, I had some images from the medieval time period here, but take a look here. This is something in K-12 education because we've got K-12 education teachers who listen to our program and use it to grow their their knowledge of the content this here is called the open educational resource i don't know if you're familiar with this but amongst k-12 folks this is like really really important stuff you can type in something like middle ages right and then what is the subject we would go here to history and then education level let's say we want to look at high school and then we can choose the state standard right of whether or not it's coming from a specific state standard so you've got all of your choices here about where you may pull your state standards from so then you can search and so our the folks who watch our show they're able to see this so you can see here now this is the information on the middle ages feudal system right shogun samurai right and and when you go in this is open resource so you've got stuff from Khan Academy in here stuff from WikiBooks in here but this is open for anyone to have access now this is a little different than Wikipedia in the sense that you can't just come in here and change these resources but what's different about this is that these resources are free and open for anyone who can log on to the internet now how would you make a comparison to this particular tool so, so this, to the Middle Ages.
1: this will be a this will be a ontology mm. Meaning, I mean, you have these huge manuscripts gather on a lot of small units and it's interesting that these small units which they're always open everybody could copy them some of them travel together so you have these compilations huge manuscripts a ontology of different texts put together another thing that this reminds me very much is is a it's called a florilegia florilegia is a book that a student or sometimes a master compiles his own use and he gathers all kind of quotes from the fathers of the church from other people and this is these are inspirational quotes or quotes around a topic and other students copy it and it goes through it's called florilegia because florilegium is a bouquet of flowers and mm. sort of the, the imagery is that he gathers flowers from old text and he makes his own book. He creates his own book. And even Michel Foucault looks at these texts and said, these are extremely, you know, these are only quotations of older texts, but they're so personal. Mm. You have your own combination. So here also you you have these cuts through topics and, and era, and you mm-hmm. combine sort of your own history book around these topics.
0: Correct. Yes. Yes. And this one here is called American Yelp. This is one of my favorites, but this is an open educational resource on United States history that actually Stanford University has been working on. And when it was in its first iteration, I don't know about today, but you could actually sign in to be a contributor and add to it. I think now oh. they've sort of solidified it a little bit more where they've got their specific folks who've who've worked on it. But in its early stages, you could actually ask for the credentials to log in and start adding information. But this has everything on United States history from indigenous people until the the modern world so this is another example and so when we think about like the power of having access to information today when right. someone disagrees with something what do they say well you can google it right and we think about during this uh, medieval time period in which folks now had books that they could say oh no on page four of this chapter it's actually what it says it's just the same story it seems but, but, you know, the, the technology so, changes. So
1: now now I think we should take a page out of medieval history and, and, and see what happens today, because it has its limitation. Let's take, for example, a religious debate between Jews and Christians.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And each one pulls up his proof text
0: mm-hmm. from the
1: same book, from the Bible. Mm-hmm. Right. But this is not enough. and And this is where dialogue conversation cracks down and breaks down. Because there's still the interpretation. The Christian will read the same text through a Christian theology and mm-hmm. um, seeing in everything in the Old Testament sort of uh, um,
0: Christological a Christological
1: reading, yes, yeah, leading up to Christ. And a Jew will see it in a very historical reading. So mm-hmm. it's not enough to have, you know, each one has his proof text. Now it's right. open to interpretations.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's right, that's right. As a listener to the Leading by History podcast, we want to thank you for being a part of this learning community. Without you, there is no us. Consider supporting Leading by History today by three simple steps one, sharing our podcast two visiting our website at leadingbyhistory.com and three making a donation at patreon backslash leading by history whichever you choose know that your support goes a long way in helping us to provide the high quality programming you've come to expect from us thank you sincerely as you support our program and continue to lead by history So now one of the things that you know I had here in our notes is to talk about the people of the book, not the right. Bible, but Gemara. By the 12th century, most of the Jewish world was pushed towards the what, what we call the Bavli or the Yerushalmi, uh, the Talmud. What, what did you want to say concerning that? I want to make sure we got that in.
1: So uh, we just talked right now on... The Jewish Christian debate over the Bible: How to read the Bible. Right. In a way, during the Middle Ages, the Bible was a Christian book, mm. definitely in the early Middle Ages, and then was retaken, re-demanded by the Jews in the eleventh, twelfth century that that tried to reinterpret it in a new way. Right. But Jewish civilization as a whole sort of found itself abiding to the Babylonian Talmud. And there's several reasons to this. The, the Babylonian Talmud used a, used a massive power of the Geonim, the heads of the yeshiva in Baghdad that sat on the same routes of transportation and control as the Abbasid Muslim dynasty and, and really pushed the Talmud around the Jewish world. And we see that, yes, Jews were the people of the book, but that book was the Babylonian Talmud more than any other book. And it moves us, you know, to this transmission of text moving around. The Babylonian Talmud moved from Babylonia to North Africa, to Spain, arriving to France. By the 12th century, the rabbis in French in France call it our Talmud. This is mm. our Talmud. Mm. So the texts move around from one place to another and are integrated into local traditions. Through the power of copists and 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 readers
0: alike. So this brings me to this gentleman that comes up in which there's debate about the religious communities of the Middle Ages. This gentleman, Eldad Hadani, or Eldad the Danite, and you know, people like Henry Abramson and others, Jewish historians, you know, have have talked about. Eldad. Uh, He's something, someone that I heard about uh, very much so in my coming up years that we always were taught was uh, an important figure because he showed the existence of Jewish communities in Africa as well. Um, And so I want to talk a little bit about this Eldad the Danite also before we uh, move into our final parts of the discussion for today. So, you know, tell me about Eldad Hadani, Eldad the Danite. I'm going to pull up on the screen. Uh, you know, Neubauer uh, did an in, in article in the Jewish Quarterly Review uh, a long, long, a long, long time, time ago. ago, right? In 1889. Yeah. This, where I are the 10 part, tribes?
1: He yeah, there's several parts to that. Mm-hmm. And, th- and then was printed again as a book altogether. Right. Um, so so in order to understand the, the story of the Danai, this crazy story, we have to go back um, to the sixth century before the common era. Mm-hmm.
0: Um,
1: they were two Jewish kingdoms after the time of Solomon. Mm-hmm. One is the kingdom of Judea, which had. Three tribes, more or less. It's uh, Judah, Benjamin, and the Levites, and mm-hmm. ten, ten tribes in the north, the Israelites, the 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 kingdom of Israel, and they were they were um, expelled from the Holy Land. Nobody knows where to. In the sixth century BCE, by Salmaneser the king, uh, the Assyrian king, and according to the Bible itself, they disappeared. Beyond the river Kval, God knows where that is. And mm-hmm. um, by the time of the rabbis, you know, a very significant rabbi in the in the second century, Rabbi Akiva, Rabbi Akiva mm-hmm. says the ten lost tribes are lost and will never return. Mm. Other people say no, they will return at the end of time. So by the eighth century, the ten lost tribes, and these are Dan, Ashur, um Asher, uh, Reuven, all of them. They were lost, by the 8th century, they were lost for a thousand years. Already. And the first man that sort of brought him back to history, that this guy, danite one day, he appears in North Africa and says, I, I came from the tribe of Dan, was mm-hmm. lost a thousand years ago. And they're somewhere, yes, probably in Africa, somewhere, and they have a king um, who, who engages in war in the enemies around him. And he has a powerful um, army, and he has a powerful kingdom, and he has the richest of the world. So this is a Utopian story. And the guys from from North Africa, from Kaiwan, are puzzled by this. And they send a letter to the leader of their time, the Gaon in Baghdad, um, telling the whole story. And this is how we know about it, because we have this letter. And the the Gaon, the leader of the yeshiva, says, you know, this Eldad, he's right. He's absolutely Mm -hmm. correct. Yeah, we know about the Ten Lost Tribes, and even some of us people met Eldad and uh, and uh, the only thing he's wrong about is that they have to pay tribute to us, the Jews of Babylonia, the Jews in Baghdad. But well, that's inner inner politics, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and ever since, you know, ever since scholars and rabbis debate whether El was right, true or not, where did he come mm-hmm. from? And opinions vary here, from China to Africa. Mm -hmm. Um, or beyond that and many texts utopian texts were attributed to him text mainly texts about the jews beyond the river sambation the river Mm -hmm. the the sabbatical river a Mm -hmm. river that for uh, six days a week cast stones huge stones and boulders and nobody could cross it and it only rests on the sabbath on the seventh day and it mm. holds behind him these huge Jewish armies ready to sprung out and and and, and conquer the world. Mm. And the only reason they don't do so is because during the sixth day of the week they can't, physically they can't cross. And on the seventh day, they observe the Sabbath. They are holy men.
0: Mm.
1: So this is this is sort of an utopian text, a apocalyptical, that at the end of the time these Jews will come forth. But but the, the the magical story wasn't it was only attributed to Eldad. When Eldad came and told the story, his story is extremely rational. He talks about a king and an army and they wage war on their enemies. There's n- there's not many magical elements in his story, mm-hmm. um, and by all likelihood, it did come from a community in Africa somewhere. Uh, the Horn in Africa, or or uh, Somalia of today, Ethiopia. We don't know exactly. Yemen crossing from Yemen to Africa, uh, but that is more or less his trajectory. Mm-hmm. Though we could never be sure. Later mm-hmm. on, he was identified we with the the Ethiopian Jews with the Beta Israel, right? And, and he and he became during history he became sort of a magical image, right? At, at first, he was a he was a political image. And you know when I read his text the, the the thing that the thing that struck me amazed was the fact that most of the description is a description of the wars that the king wages on their enemies. And I thought if these guys these ten lost tribes are such powerful heroes why don't they win? Why do not they always are in constant battle all the time? And that's when it hit me that 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 this is what the story was meant to tell to say, you know, for the Jews in the diaspora during the Middle Ages, mm-hmm. the one thing they were lacking was political power, mm-hmm. was an army, was independence. Mm-hmm. And this is what Eldad came to give them. Mm-hmm. This is why they needed Ildan, because he gave them exactly what they were missing:
0: mm-hmm.
1: political power, a king an army that, that is is undefeatable, but still fights all the time, and independence.
0: Mm, that's pre- that's pretty deep in the understanding of why Eldad was an important figure here. And I would encourage the audience to go and do some more study to find out a little bit more about Eldad. Um, tell me this do religious manuscripts stay the same over time during the middle ages, uh, or are they changed and modified? I think we talked about that a little bit, right? Yes. So, so, so they are changed over time, but here's the question I want to lead into there is what have you found in your research as, and, and what is your opinion on what is more reliable uh, oral tradition or that which is written and i know that's and you know coming into our uh you know last portion of the episode i know this is pretty heavy but uh what what have you seen what what is the importance of the written versus the oral and the oral versus the written what do we take away from that
1: we tend to we tend to think that the oral changes much easier than the written text this is false and it's mm. not my only my research. This is research done on the transmission of the Vedas in in India. This was on, on the Humeric poetry in Greece. Uh, there's a lot of uh, research done. Michael Perry and others have shown that that oral texts are transmitted much more um, loyalty in a loyal way um, than written texts. Um, and we're talking about a manuscript culture. Under print, it changes dramatically. And, and the reason for this is exactly what we talked about before that. Because when somebody copies a text, it tends to unconsciously t- by times to change it, to fit its own worldview. Mm. When you study a text orally, you have to repeat it over and over again. And you usually you sing it. And you can't change yes. because then the hymn will change and the rhyme will mm.
0: change. Yes. And,
1: and you have to be very um, loyal to, to the tradition that you got it from. Surprisingly enough, copy text changed more than oral ones. And we have, you know, from we have from the Dead Sea Scrolls, almost all the books of the of the Hebrew Bible, some of them in several copies, the, the scroll of Isaiah, the scroll of Jeremiah. There's one book missing from there. That's a book of Esther. Mm. Probably the people of the Dead Sea Scrolls didn't think, didn't find it holy. And then the next manuscript we have is, is a thousand years later, from the a 10th century. And the changes, and this text, you know, it was copied, it was. Orally, the changes are minuscule. There are changes over this hundred years that we have no manuscript, but the changes are minuscule, really small. Uh, on the other hand, we have, the uh, you know, the, even even the text of, uh, of medieval authors. We have several versions of the same text, which each one is different, legal text even. The best example could be the writings of Eldad himself. This is something that I've done some research on. Eldad brought with him a set of laws, and we could follow the the chain of transmission through the different manuscripts of this chains of laws. And his laws were very bizarre and eccentric in a way. They were a bit of biblical. They had very difficult words in it, and, and over time. Every man if could follow it one after the other, they were changed so they won't contradict the prevailing Jewish tradition, which at the time was Babylonian. Mm. So this is how a traditional society copes with new ideas. It doesn't talk in a manner of truth and false. When it's presented with a new idea, with a contradicting idea, it won't say this is false. It sort of integrates it by changing it, by elaborating on it, so it won't contradict. It goes around the problem instead of head-on attacking
0: it. Mm, Interesting. I think about in religious ideas, there are in America so many, I'm sure around the world, but speaking specifically of the American context, there are movements that believe that the biblical text in translation is the word of God, right? Um, Even in translation. Even in translation, for example, there's a movement called the King James Only Movement. And this is an American movement that believes that the King James Version text is the word of God in translation. And it's amazing because the written text, what I take from that, is that the written text is so important to, to people And they want it to be holy, and they want it to be consistent and and never changing, which is why we would consider a book the the written word of of a deity, right? Mm. But then we sort of forsake practical thinking to realize that people are changing things. And reality changes, and history changes. Everything changes. Over time. I mean, there was a time in which it was believed that the earth was flat, right? Right, uh, and, and, and I'm not talking about Columbus and sailing the ocean. I'm saying there was a time period in the uh, late 19th century where there were religious movements using the English biblical text to say, because it says the four corners of the earth, that it meant that the earth was therefore flat And was in the shape of a square. I think of a of a famous sermon that was done by someone from the city where I am in Richmond, Virginia, Mm -hmm. a famous African-American pastor named Pastor Jasper, and he was a formerly enslaved person. And upon his freedom, he began to want to learn the biblical text. And as he begins to grow in his literacy, he becomes this voracious reader, and starts to study the biblical text from from as the Christian text has it, from Genesis to Revelation, right? Right. Uh, and he says this, he has this famous speech that he preaches, and it's called in the vernacular of the enslaved during that time. Mm. It was called the sun do move and the earth am flat. And th- that was uh, the vernacular of a, of a people that were not given the same access to literacy in this language. But what that translates in, into is the sun moves and the earth is flat. And he goes into this long sermon in which he uses the King James biblical text to prove that the sun actually moves using the story of Joshua. And, right. the, and the famous fight where the sun was said to stand still and that the earth is flat because of the four corners. And I bring that up because I, I was always so fascinated by that sermon and by the interpretation. Someone like that would have significant challenges with stomaching the idea that, mm-hmm. number one, they're reading a translation, Right. And they're reading a translation that also has shifted and changed over time. There are about three or four different versions of the King James Version in general. I think when we talk about the the medieval time period and the birth of, of writing, and even when we get into this period of the 16th century, where we start to see the, the production of machine for print, right, right. Um, the written text has always been so important to people, right. especially religious people. But
1: the, the end of the Middle Ages is also the rise of the vernacular.
0: Mm. You know? And
1: even though the Italians and the Renaissance wanted to go back to Greek and Latin, saying, you know, the, the translator is the traitor. Mm. But still, this is a time, you know, King James Version is a very good example. This is a time of the rise of the vernacular. This this marks the end of the Middle Ages when, when knowledge becomes available to all. And I think the best lesson I got, as a, personally as a person, was outside a church in the United States, mm-hmm. when I went over, and there was a and there was a huge sign out of that church. I don't even know what type of church it was, and it said, "God is still speaking," mm. and you know, limiting God and limiting revelation to one book, sort of, mm-hmm. is 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 sort of. Downsizing him in a way. Mm. I think I truly believe that that science and human and human achievements is also a revelation by God, mm. and mm. God speaks to us in many in many ways, mm. and and a written revelation is one way. Mm-hmm. And other and there's other ways that God speaks to us mm. truth, through love, through, and we need to listen. And if you mm. think that there's only one. <laughs> One a uh, medium by mm-hmm. which God's talked to you, you're limiting him, and you're limiting yourself.
0: Mm. That's almost like as we come to the end of our program, that's almost like a takeaway, right? I normally right. ask my right. guests for a message for them to send. What is the takeaway from the program? I think I think you hit it there with that. is I, that I agree. I agree <laughs> is that and i
1: and I learned this from the Jewish Middle Ages, mm. surprisingly enough. A time of intolerance, a time of of, of, of bigamist, of racism, but mm-hmm. also a time of, of, of great love to the truth and of mm-hmm. many uh, truth seekers.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I that's the important part. And Thomas Aquinas mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. And,
1: and others. Yeah. Beautiful. Wow.
0: Yeah. Those are really great words to end on is that we don't want to limit the beauty of the human experience and our search for truth to only a single text but to recognize that life provides us experiences in many forms and while the written text is powerful we don't want to only become bookworms if you will but we also want to experience love with our family friends and neighbors we want to experience the beauty of our geography as uh, Dr. Cindy Parker would be sure to, to have us point out. Uh, we want to experience the beauty of the heavenlies, right? right. The uh, those celestial bodies, there's beauty all around us. Absolutely. The written text is beautiful. And we also want to realize, especially in this age of technology, that there are other mediums that can be accessed now. And we should also be focused on how we can engage those uh, other forms as yeah. well. Wow. Yeah, I think that's really that's really powerful. I love that. I love that. This is how we came to the end of our programming with that great idea that you you right. brought to us to think about.
1: It's a it's a it's a medieval idea of the, the oral. The written. We didn't talk about material culture, about pictures, mm. statues, mm. colors, senses. Uh, the Middle mm. Time were a time that hit you from all senses, all around you.
0: Mm. So
1: you have to be open to the ex- experience.
0: I like that. So today, audience, the takeaway: just remember those things that you have access to so much, and our students, our children, have access to all of these different forms of information. And it's not just about staring at your phone all day or looking at your laptop computer all day. It's not only about putting a book in front of your face, but it's also about getting out into the greater society and world and traveling and experiencing and having conversation. Right. Our dialogue today has been very helpful and insightful. Extremely. And, uh, and let's, It was wonderful. Let's share that. Uh, experience as as human beings. Hey, look, Dr. Perry, I, I've enjoyed being with you today. I definitely want to, in the future, bring you on again, you know, as you continue your research and, you know, continue to share with our audience updates, information. Definitely want to get on again. The middle age period is, is so vast. There's so much to discuss. We've only scratched the proverbial surface Service but it was great to have this time with you all the way from the land of Israel. Thank you so much.
1: This is wonderful. Your, your, your podcast is wonderful. Leading by history is truly by its name, leading by history. And it's, so it's, I'm, I'm privileged to be a part of it. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you so much. And from we at leading by history, we say peace. Shalom. Shalom. Salam. Thank you for tuning in to the Leading by History podcast. We enjoyed being with you today and we look forward to being with you again soon. Remember, never accept any information on face value alone, but always keep a leveled head and go and investigate the sources. Leading by History. Peace.